Hi there, I'm Andy Bush, and welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a journey into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. Uh, in the terror trenches with me, as ever, are Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the uh, terrifying Scarred for Life books. Every week we're going to be speaking to a special guest who'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of someone that has literally scarred them for life. Before we meet this week's fantastic guests, let's just check in very quickly with some of uh, the things you guys have been saying on uh, Twitter or on our Instagram page. We love you guys getting in touch. Thank you so much. Hi to Paul Childs, who's halfway through last week's episode, of course, with the brilliant Charlie Higson. He says, uh, guys, I'm halfway through the episode so far. I need to check out She immediately. I looked up... Uh, st- how did Charlie say Because I got it wrong in the podcast. Stool, stool petter? <laughs> something like that none of I us I think it was <laughs> yeah. but whatever Charlie was talking about he says wow uh, thought that would make kids laugh what's going on there and the image from a kids book that stayed with me was from Haunted Houses Ghosts and Spectres a nun staring through the Borley Rectory window which is uh, a bit of a classic as well yet again uh, guys Borley, Wect- Borley Rectory making another comeback or appearance on the Scarred for Life podcast it's the iconic Haunted House right? The most haunted house in Britain. It was the one that terrified me as a kid for years afterwards. It was in a magazine called Ghost Special Number no. 2, where I first became aware of Borley Rectory. But um, it was it had such an effect on me that even the words Borley Rectory would send a shiver down <laughs> my spine for like 10 years afterwards. But I, I know the incident Paul's on about there. And I need to see that picture. Yeah. But yeah, there was. We've talked about this in another episode, didn't we? The, that that idea of people just appearing at windows. Yeah. Just kind of out of nowhere is just a terrifying prospect. Full stop. So I was gonna say, I think the creepiest thing about Ghost Special Number Two is that nobody's ever seen Ghost Special Number One. This is it. No. <laughs> never found it. Never found it. Uh- well, let's, uh, uh, if you have, if, if you are the owner of Go, Go Special Number One, then do get in touch. Uh, contact at scarforlifebooks.com. Right, let's let's get on with uh, the episode and meet this week's guest. Award-winning actor, writer, and director Matthew Holness is best known for his alter ego, the visionary dreamweaver and legendary British horror author Garth Marenghi, the genius behind dark literature classics such as Crab, Locust Rex, Overdrawn and Quartered, and Night of the Haddock. From appearances in comedies such as The Office, Life's Too Short, and Friday night dinner to his more serious work as the writer and director of short films like a gun for george and the snipist matthew's love of horror and the scarred for life era has shone through in his brilliantly disturbing 2019 psychological horror film possum in 2022 archduke o darkness garth Marenghi returned with an anthology book of horror stories Terratome, and his follow-up incarcerate has just been unleashed uh, matthew holness welcome to scarred for life it's brilliant to have you on well, thank you very much no it's nice to be here well, uh, it's clear from a very early age that you uh, are, were obsessed, are obsessed with horror and hammer horror specifically. C- can you can you pinpoint where that love affair with it began for you? Um, I don't think there was a specific starting point. I think I, I always, as soon as I, I can remember the advert on TV advertising when it was one of the ha- hammer double bills, and I remember I can still see it, the advert coming on with Frankenstein's face, and I was absolutely. Uh, I couldn't, you know, I was begging my mum, please, please let me have the, can we record these films? I actually missed that one. <laughs> really annoying. And I think the first one I ended up recording was uh, Dracula AD 1972, which absolutely haunted me. Um, but, you know, that's, yeah, that was my, fir- I think that was my first Hammer film that I saw. Yeah. We're to- totally inappropriate for a seven or eight year old, but there we are. <laughs> uh, and were you, were you absolutely petrified of it, or did you just think it was kind of like weird, or what, what kind I of effect it, did it have on you? Weird things about it. I think it was it was the world of adults more than anything else, as well as all the vampires and all the horror element. I think you know the idea of of old, old gangs of older people hanging around and you know <laughs> lots of breasts and things like that. Yeah, that's a bit all a bit. Oh my god, what is this? What what's the world? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you make a very good point there. I mean, uh, particularly with some of those Hammer horror movies, it's it's uh, for someone of a certain age, it's uh, um, early access bit of blue, I guess, yeah. isn't it? With a bit of fruitiness going on there. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes, I mean, I had I, I collected all the. Uh, uh, this, you know, W.H. Smith would put out horror books, you know, books of horror films. I, I think I've got History of Horror. I can't remember what it is. There's obviously the other one uh, by oh, I can't, Frank. 
what's his name frank something or other another big book of horror films and of course you've got in there you've got all the you know you huge mixture of different images um, not least lots of very large-breasted female vampires <laughs> which i think oh. a young lad teenage lad you kind of you know you, you have those in there as well all in the mix <laughs> uh, and then i mean I, i've tried to put forward a theory on this podcast on a number of weeks and it's not really worked uh, so far but I, I do believe there's something in where you grow up and the, the scenery and landscape of where you grow up can can have an effect on your interest in the, in this kind of thing obviously i'm right in saying that you, you grew up in whitstable is that right yeah yeah, so Peter Cushing lived in Whitstable, and you um, would see him quite often around. So, yes, that was that was a bit odd because it was it was nice because you you kind of you know the world of Hammer and Horror was there sort of in, in your hometown. Yeah. But yes, it was kind of a nice a nice sort of thing to have. Um, not that you really kind of processed it because he was just there. You just saw him a lot. You know, is is it true? Is the story true that? You asked Peter Cushing for his autograph when you were about six and he, he expressed concern for why you actually knew his films. Yeah, I, I think I was a bit older than that, actually. But I was there with, it was, with, had this, used to have this very nice bookshop in Whitstable called Peering Cavenders. And, uh, and I was outside there with my mum and my brother and we saw Peter Cushing looking in Peering Cavenders' window. Um, and we said, oh, my mum, it's, it's him. So my mum basically took us up to him introduced us and said that we were huge fans of his films and he signed us a little piece of paper a little autograph each um and he was a little concerned we were watching his horror films <laughs> but we did say well star, star wars as well um and then i saw him again for my 11 plus in, in kent they still have the 11 plus system for kids to get to grammar school or not um and i passed my 11 plus and as my little treat from my parents for for working hard they asked me what i'd like so i, I requested the peter cushing autobiography and we went into canterbury and got it signed by him and he wrote a lovely little message in the in the front of the book um yeah so yes that was that was a, a wonderful part of childhood to be honest <laughs> oh amazing that's amazing and, and you know just staying with the childhood side of things whitstable in terms of how it looks do you think that would in formed your uh you know interest in horror because it, it's got like there's something about seaside towns i grew up in 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 south devon in, yeah. uh, in brixham in devon and sometimes in the winter seaside towns with their cobbled streets particularly whitstable have got a good kind of there's almost a hammer horror they've got a good, have you got oh, a good yeah. narrow alleyway in in whitstable or something like that well it's very different now it was very different now from what it was when i was growing up it was very windswept and empty and there was hardly anyone there so yes it was very atmospheric lots of kind of strange little Old creepy places, um, but now I mean it's just not like that. It's so overpopulated that it is not the Whitstable I grew up in. Having said that, Hearn Bay, just further along the coast, is still very much like Whitstable was as I was growing up. So it's kind of odd. If you actually want to feel for that sort of area, pop along to Hearn Bay instead. <laughs> okay, no, fantastic. <laughs> How Whitstable no. was 20, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> Uh, and then, I mean, you've you've worked in so many uh, different mediums, like you know, you've directed, you've written radio, TV, uh, yeah. books, whatever. Do you have a favourite medium? Or I, I remember seeing an interview where you said you kind of you got bored with TV. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I wasn't really bored with TV. I got fed up with how TV works now, and with that, and I'm risking sounding a bit like Garth Marenghi, sort of banging on about this. But I mean, I, <laughs> I think I prefer more than anything else writing to any anything else I do. I love writing. And the trouble is that in TV and film, uh, authorship is not really respected. And they don't really they don't really trust an individual writer to kind of know what they're doing and get on with it. And and there's so much money involved in, in television and film that they can't risk investing large sums on one person. They, they're just risk averse now. They don't want to do that. They would rather have know that they are hitting the most people with and so they get teams of writers they get and you and as a writer you you really don't have much say and and everything has to go through so many different channels and committees to decide what's acceptable so you, you just end up with a very um very dull and rather conventional um product at the end and not i think that's from a creative point of view that's that, that's not very interesting because you're just writing very bland you know, safe material. So something like Possum, yeah. for example, just wouldn't get commissioned now, or, or you know, it couldn't. It couldn't happen now. I don't think simply because they would be going. Well, hang on a minute. This is a this is a film about paedophilia, and 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 this is also a horror film about it. And it's 
you know, it, it, I just don't think anyone would be putting money into that anymore. Um, so I think, yeah, it was one of those things. And, and, to, and so I've taken a break from film and TV simply because writing books, you're, you're kind of your own boss again and you can kind of just write what you want to write. Um, and it's just, it's purely, for me, it's purely about authorship more than anything else because, you know, TV and film, if you could you know they pay far more than writing a book pays and the writing book really doesn't you know you can't make money from short stories or anything like that but i so you know i can see why people are happy to just sort of compromise and 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 take the the tv money or whatever but i think that on 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 the on a matters of of purely creative on the on the purely creative side of things um i don't think writing for tv is worth it It, 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 you can only do it if you're happy to just let whatever you write get ripped apart by other people and turned into something palatable that's ultimately what it is (laughs) steve garth marengio that's an interesting point (laughs) interesting point because obviously we've me and dave have written two books about Mm. the 70s and 80s and a lot of it is concerned with television yeah and obviously there's God knows how many hours of stuff that me and Dave have watched yeah. over the last 10 years in research. And it always struck me that back in the 70s especially, it felt like the BBC and ITV were just giving people money and going, just go and make something, bring it to us and we'll show it. There just seemed like very little interference. I think that probably was far more like that then. And it wasn't, you know, it, it's on a case by case basis. I think, I, you know, certainly when in my time doing stuff, that there was a similar sort of thing in that they let us, they let Richard, Ayuazi and myself go away and, and kind of make dark place pretty much how we wanted to make it. We didn't really have any interference. We had, you know, we obviously, you have to run, always had to run things past editors and, and uh, you know, kind of channel for commissioning editors. I mean, um, but those were those were good conversations, good creative conversations, you know, because essentially they trusted you to do it um, and they were just being helpful. Um, but I think these days it's much more about, uh, well, w- this could all go horribly wrong. So we need to make sure it's going to work from day one. So get these guys in, put them with these guys, <laughs> you know, and reduce we, risk, basically. Someone was, I mean, someone was telling me that there's, a, that, you know, there's just there's just an approval process for everything now with the risk of sounding very, you know, bitter i'm not bitter at all it's just a personal choice about wanting to go through that process or not but there is a process of an approval process for everything you know you writers have to be approved by various levels in production companies and channels and streamers casting has to be approved every single creative decision has to be approved by money people and people who who not, aren't necessarily the uh, of an artistic you know bent. It's just that yeah. thing. Yeah. That you, you know, and 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 often the most interesting stuff, the quirky stuff, is because you don't do what's conventionally right. You you do something that is not right, and 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 you only know if that works or not by being able having that freedom to do it. Um, yeah. I think that you know the. the the situation now is you just get a lot of very similar stuff produced that is not particularly challenging or provocative or um you know it, it's it's just safe everything's safe that's the most important thing safe yeah. because they have to ensure they get their money stream coming in and they can't offend certain you know um, areas and it's not about offending at all it's it's about being able to just write challenging material i think and if you're a horror writer you need to be able to do that otherwise you're just producing you know, crowd-friendly popcorn stuff, which you know, as in my my taste in horror is not that way at all. I like stuff that's you know, stimulating and challenging and, and disturbing. Um, I yeah, really want yeah. just popcorn horror all the time. You know, I do sound like. Uh, sorry. <laughs> do you find there's a much lighter touch with your written work than there is with your TV work? I mean, would you say you have more freedoms now to? To write exactly what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's why I'm doing it because, uh, you know, you ju- you're just sort of respected as an author, and I mean by what they respect that you have a, a vision in your head that you're trying to get down on paper, and that's why you do it. I mean, writing a book is is so much more time consuming than writing a script, and I think that it could all change. I mean, if books produced enough money for people, then I'm sure they would be, you know 
slamming down on what you can and can't write more. But it's just it's, yeah. at the moment, at this point in time, it's you are able to express yourself more in a in a book or a story than you are on TV. And I'm sure hundreds and hundreds of people will disagree with me on that. Um, but for me personally, I don't feel I can write what I want to write in the medium of film and TV without just having people saying, we, well, you can't really do that. <laughs> have you had have you had anything you've written? And they've looked at it and go, no, you're not doing that. You can't do that. Well, yeah, kind of everything in that I've got so many scripts in various levels of development. But they just reach a point where, you know, it's and not only that. I mean, the practical another practical issue is is just casting with with TV taking over an independent film being so uh, marginalized these days. You can't get actors because they're all signed up to, you know, 10 or 12 months or even longer contracts to various channels. And there's yeah. time in the diary to get a, a star in, in, your, in your schedule. And one independent film, you can't afford to pay a star the kind that the, of money they'll get on TV, which basically means they have to want to do it from a purely creative point of view. And they have to kind of accept, well, I'm not going to get paid for this, but I really want to do this particular kind of thing. But being able to find an actor that is that can sell your film, that is happy to do that, plus fit in the schedule, which is almost non-existent because they're all... It's just independent film has become much, much harder to get anything off the ground simply because of the changing medium, I think, you know. Uh, I have to say, I um, was laughing my head off. I was crying with laughter on the train in today. I was listening to the audiobook version of uh, Garth Marenghi's Terratome Volume 2 in Carcerat. Absolutely fantastic, particularly the story about the um, the, uh, the the author... Well, you, you know, the, the guy that's having, I don't know how to put it really, having sexual relations with his typewriter. There's only one way of putting it like that. Uh, and, you know, I, there's always a bit of a tradition, I think, with, with horror short stories, particularly going back to the Stephen King days um, and a little bit of Lovecraft as well, where, you know, the the, the author is is part of the story themselves yeah. as well. And and, and is, it, is it Nick Steen? Is that the name of your the character in that? I mean, he says he can't be edited. And, you know, just some of your what you're saying there about that, that fight back, that pushback again, against uh, the, the powers that w- could curtail your creative spirit. Do, do you feel they come through in, Nick? That's it. It's a great way of getting it out of your system, definitely. You know, I think... But I've always sort of done that. I mean, I I kind of... I've always written about writers for a start, so it's almost a way of processing, you know, what the, the push and pull the, of, of, of that process and trying to get something made. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess like in Gun for George, that's a writer who's out of work and out of time and, you know but has this burning desire to write what he needs to write. And it is that thing. It's about that clash between the personal need and desire to express oneself, but an industry that can only let you express yourself in a certain way, or you're just writing into, you know, an empty corner, which I've often done. (laughs) You know, I've I've, I've probably spent most of my life writing into an empty corner in a way, you know, and I think, that's just, I guess that's just my, you know, my feeling about things. Yeah, that's how I do it, I suppose. Well, talking about Garth Marenghi and the gun for George, mm. the reprisal, even me and my mates in work, I used to work in a branch of Forbidden Planet in Liverpool, yeah. and we were all obsessed with Garth Marenghi when that started. But it felt like no one else was watching the damn thing yeah. because most of us grew up with those horror books from the 70s and 80s, but we could see the love, even though, it takes the piss. But we could see the love and affection for James Herbert, yeah. Sean Hudson, Graham Masterton, my favourite, Guy Ann Smith, big yeah. Guy Ann Smith fan. Unironically, Night of the Crabs is one of my favourite yeah, books likewise. ever. <laughs> I've read it about six or seven times. Yeah. It's awful, objectively. But it's like comfort food. I mean, it's there's, um, there's a paragraph I always show people when they ask me about Night of the Crabs. It's not the giant crabs. I've got my beautifully battered beloved copy with me it's the most romantic vomiting scene in literary (laughs) history (laughs) there's a scene with a hero and his girlfriend i've just watched a guy get ripped to shreds by giant crabs on a beach and guy and smith writes how awful the words came in a tortured gasp from pat she felt as though she was about to faint she was glad of cliff davenport's comforting arm Together, they vomited into the spiky grass of the sand dunes, which is just brilliant. But with Garth Marenghi, there's such a... You could probably slide a cigarette paper between reality and Garth Marenghi because... So what are your views on that? You obviously love it. Well, what's interesting 
apparently, apparently Guyan Smith was, I think someone told him about Garth Marenghi once. And, and he, his response was this. It was apparently, um, oh, well, I don't know who the chap is, but all good to him if, it's, uh, if I'm helping him, you know, do some stuff. It was just totally charitable, totally nice, not remotely. Fun. Oh, um, I've heard Sean Hudson doesn't have the same attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was quite angry about Garth Marenghi, but I heard. But you know, but yes. No, I mean, I love those writers, and I always have. And in fact, I mean, I'm I'm stopping off at the moment in the tour, um, and I'm near where I well, I mean, and where I grew up. I'm in Whitstable at the moment. And yesterday, I just I just went into Herne Bay to go to the same supermarket where I used to see all the James Herberts and Stephen Kings lined up. These beautiful, well, particularly James Herbert ones, the beautiful black and white with silver and gold covers. And I can remember seeing them there, and I just went in again because I wanted to be in the same space where I'd seen those books, and I just wow. wandered through. And it's a, I think it's a Morrison's. Now. I just sort of stood there for a moment, went, this was where they were, and it just really, I don't know, I, I'm a bit weird like that. I like doing all that stuff um but that was it i always loved those books and and they always had a huge impression on me and actually when i started doing garth i think it, i was much more or oh, let's take the piss because this stuff's awful it's you know it's terrible and actually the older i've got i don't think it is that bad i think i've just developed a greater appreciation for pulp writing or not even pulp writing but kind of popular writing i suppose yeah. um whereas I was probably just out of university and a bit of a snob when I was first doing this stuff. Um, but now I, I just have a greater appreciation for writers who, who, who hammer out books because hammering out a book is a huge task. It's, and actually having written to now, comparing that to writing a film script, I don't believe that writing a film script is, is anywhere near as taxing or hard as writing a book because a book breaks your back, it breaks your neck, it kills your time it makes you unfit if you don't get up and walk around it's it's a very very different beast i think to writing films so i have huge respect for these writers and, and particularly those kinds of pulp writers who just wrote a lot i mean not just horror but crime writers western writers um a lot of them a lot of the guys who wrote for example the, the new english library books were i think journalists because they were just used to you know hammering out copies so a lot of those like the, yeah. the the George Gilman Westerns, I think, were I think Terry Harknett was a um, a, a journalist um, more than a writer, and but he he just hammered out one of these books every I think every month. It's a skill. It really is a skill, you know. But do you do you have are you like super prolific, Matthew? Like we spoke to Muriel Gray on an episode uh, mm. a few weeks back on on the podcast, and uh, she she has eleven unfinished books on her computer at the moment. Yeah. Have you got like a lot of stuff that you've got? two-thirds of the way through and thought, oh, I'll come back to that at another point? Or are you quite good getting from start to finish in the writing process? No, I've got a lot of stuff that's unfinished, stuff that's... Un and actually, before I did these Garth books, I mean, I, w I would write short stories, but I was never a particularly prolific short story writer. I've only written a handful. but And I always had in this head, I, I did, in my head, I had that I, I, don't, I couldn't do anything novel length. I just didn't think I could do it. Um, right. And it's only when I got the garth book commissioned that i realized i had to because there was no choice i was commissioned <laughs> big commissioned to do it and <laughs> yeah. so i then having done that and having done the other one i suddenly realized it was a skill i was able to develop and now i knew that i could do it and it's a bit like a, it's a psychological hurdle i think of of just knowing that you can write something that length and once you know you've done it once you kind of know you can do it again. And I think that, so now I'm going to go back to all the things that I've got half written and, and half formed and just have a go at them and get them finished simply because I know I can do it now. And I was always giving up at the hurdle because I didn't think I could hit something that long, you know, because it's it's such yeah. a yeah. task trying to write a book. But having done it, it's almost like you, you just go up a gear and you go, oh, okay, now I see how that is done. Now I see how these writers do it. It is about, producing a certain number of words a day but actually the more you do it the number of words you do a day get that gets easier it gets easier to do um and you can find i mean i used to spend all day doing i don't know two thousand words in fact it would be less than that two thousand i never thought i could hit in a day but as some of these days i, I would be doing two thousand in the first couple of hours and then there were even some days where wow. I'd, I'd written six to seven thousand words which is weird because that's pure hack writer territory <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> banging it out. Help, you know, <laughs> uh, Dave. 
So many, many moons ago, we spoke to the Reverend Lionel Fanthorpe when uh, the 14 DVD came out. Um, and he had a career as a writer in the 60s. And you think he wrote over 200 books. And he was knocking out one or two a week, apparently, at, at some points, because it was an incredible, incredibly prolific rate of yeah. writing books. It's just, it's, it's, it amazes me that people can do that. It's just. Well, I can't, I can't imagine the discipline. It's because obviously me and Dave, there's, we described the wall you have to smash through. Me and Dave started writing as a hobby and then kind of realised, actually, we can finish this. But it felt like a brick wall yeah. in front of us. And once we smashed through it, we were like, no, we can do this. Yes, that's it. So we... That's it. That's exactly... Because your books are... I mean, they are big books. There's a lot of stuff in that. I yeah. was always admiring. I don't know how you, A, get time to, to watch all this stuff, but to have then formed imp- opinions on it and be able to, 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 you know, write those up. I mean, there's just so many you haven't left anything out. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It does become a discipline. It literally does become a discipline with us. We've got our lists of things to write about. And it's a question of choosing, like at the moment I'm writing a, a piece about Clive Barker mm. for volume three, because there will be a big section about right. these books in our next book. And it is kind of just getting into the frame of, right, I've got to write about Clive Barker now. What 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 do I think about? Because he was the first horror author I obsessed over. Yeah. Like a he was a pop star to me. So it's, I don't know. There is some, some subjects we kind of, I guess you kind of think, oh God, I've got to write about this. But because we enjoy, we've chosen a subject that we are passionate yes. about. So mm. it's never a chore. Yeah. Ever. But that's the thing. With these pulp authors, I'm guessing they're given a deadline by their editors or the publishers. This time next month, you've got to write a story about a, a Western, a cowboy and a, a star beast yeah. and a, something else. And the discipline involved in churning that out in three or four well, weeks. I, think a lot of, I can't imagine. A lot of them were alcoholics, I think. I, I used to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to pick up these when I was uh, my my partner's parents lived out in Australia for a while. We would go out there every so often, and I would pick up what was then uh, run by Cleveland Publishing. They were a publisher that had been around since the 1950s, and and every single month since the 1950s, this family had printed eight paperback westerns in in sort of digest form. So it's like a little mini magazine, but they were short novel length westerns, about 35,000, 40,000 words, which are the same sort of length as the the little books in Garth, uh, in the Garth books. So they're kind of still, you know, they're, they're not short stories. They are a, you know, they're a little bit more than that. But these guys, used, there was one guy called Paul Wheelerhan and another one called Keith Hetherington, and they had numerous um pseudonyms you know all these great western pseudonyms you know um emerson dodge and uh and uh, clay winchester and things like that but they would just churn these things out but as i was sort of investigating and reading up the history of them you know it would be they'd start on the monday and they'd get it finished by the friday but they'd have been they just started drinking by the Wednesday <laughs> and then they were out in the pub for the weekend and then sort of rolling in on Monday to start the process again. <laughs> so it's weird. I mean, I don't know, I guess it's not it's a fun way to earn a living, I suppose, but I don't know how much those guys are. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you write, uh, Matthew? Do you go do you go to a garden shed or you go and sit in a cafe? What's your process for writing? It's a mixture. I, I do my rough drafting on a thing called a Neo two, an Alpha Smart Neo two, which was a really amazing little word processor that they actually manufactured for schools um, before the days of iPads and and it's a little self-contained keyboard run on uh, I think a couple of AA batteries and um, oh sorry that's a come through oh, that's gone now you can edit that out <laughs> um, so it's run on a couple of AA batteries and you and you just type into it and and there's no you can't go online or anything it's just a tiny little dot almost dot matrix looking screen where you can see your stuff so you don't really edit it so you can hammer out a draft on that and all you do is you wire it up and you can even now wire it up if you get the right connections you wire up wire it up to a little uh, uh thing in your like I, I wire that and type that into scrivener on my phone app and then you can save that and then you can edit it on on your own computer or something like that so i do a lot of my oh, rough wow. drafts on that and the beauty is you can go anywhere with that you can take it in your car you write anywhere you want um because it doesn't you don't need an electric point or anything um and then you've got that and then you can edit and i do most of my editing and proper writing at home at the desk and that's when your back breaks but but the rough drafting (laughs) is done sort of wherever wherever i want really i mean just alluded to the fact there you know dave with his what was your, your book about crabs called again dave 
Stephen, sorry, Stephen, what was your... Oh, see, oh, it's the legendary Knight of the Crabs yeah. by Guyanne Smith. There's something about how books look and feel that's a big part of it. You just mentioned, you know, talk, going back to where you saw the James Herbert books and everything as yeah. well, Matthew. Uh, it's great that there's like a little, uh, there's a lovely map in in Carcerat of the of of the town and uh, you know it, it's just good to see it was almost takes me back to kind of fighting fantasy days where you get the little map at the beginning where where did that come about it's fairly unusual to have a map at the start of something but it looks so, it looks so good in the book i think it's always been part of paperback publishing and in fact there were these i think they were called dell mapbacks in the 1950s and those were um they would it was a paper early paperback publisher and they would publish classics but for every single book they'd have a map on the back that they got some artists to do so there's one of king solomon's mines and they'd sort of map out where the action takes place for some of the crime ones there's a beautiful one for the dashiel hammett um series uh, the, the continental Op or whatever i can't remember the name of it but anyway his his uh, his cop series um and they'll have the uh, a map of the city and where the crimes take place and all of that beautifully done and i actually think that it's it's almost like they had to find a way to sell the classics and they had to appeal at the time to, I suppose, a, a, a kind of more working class readership, I think, the kind of the old pulp magazine uh, readership. Um, mm. So I think it's always been part of it. I mean, person, I mean, we used to joke, one of our early Garth jokes, Richard and I, was that, you know, Garth would say, and there's a map in the front. And we would find that hilarious because, of course, that's like the ultimate anti-intellectual thing. Or so we thought, don't have a map in the front. But, you know, <laughs> that's the older I've got and the more Garth-like I'm, I think. I, I just love maps in books. I love it because I think it's an aid to the imagination. Yeah. I think it's, it is that, it is appealing to that child part of your brain, I think, where you just want to totally buy into the world and you want to escape into it. And I think any, any kind of visual aid like that is just, is just extra. It's extra filling in the sandwich, I think. You just love it. It's, you know, so yeah. I, I, I always thought it was very important to have a map for these because I just think to, to get a sense of the world that they're in. You know, I, I any any kind of map in a book I adore, particularly those fighting fantasy ones. I mean, I grew up on those. But you know, Tolkien's got maps. And everyone's done maps for, for these sorts of things. I don't see it. I don't see it as a. I don't see it as a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a problem, uh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I'm always very wary of books that have a map mm. and a dramatic persona. I, I think, hang on, is it, if you've got to list all the characters, it's going to be too complicated for me. <laughs> if there's a map, I'm going to have to remember where I am. I, I just, no. <laughs> well, there's some of the early westerns were great because they'd not only have a map, but they'd have a cast, like you say, cast the characters, and they'd often have a little illustration of the character. And it was almost like you were, re I suppose, because of course this was before any kind of ability to watch anything from home. This is probably television days so you'd have the characters described and a little line underneath about what what their motivation in the story was and it's about it was like a trailer for a film you know and and i love yeah wow. like you know this guy he's da, 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 but he's got this guy here and how can they and it's just lovely you just feel them drumming up your excitement you know but you know, with your with your love of of the classics and you know, and some of those that the retro element of those things you've just been talking about, what what do you like with kind of contemporary stuff then, Matthew? Contemporary TV, film, or literature? Are you as into that as you are some of those classics or not? Uh, I'm not. No, I <laughs> I'm a real miserable <laughs> old git when it comes to modern stuff. Not that I won't watch it, but I cannot stand. I'm just. It's just in in my head. I cannot stand digital, high digital look for things. It it just. Mm. For some reason, I don't believe any of it. It just looks to me like people. And it's, it's, it doesn't quite work because I watch video. You know, I love kind of period video stuff, that, you know, the, the kind of stuff you guys cover from the 70s, which is just as, you know, unfilm-like. And, and the thing about film is, for me, having grown up, and it's like fairy tale. It's like the dream. I can enter into that world. It is a suspension of disbelief that the quality of film gives me when as a as a viewer going in i totally buy into them it's like seeing a, a, a story in my head that i totally believe in when i watch an hd horror film or a drama i just see actors i see the set i see the dressing everything and and 
they just don't leave this stuff alone. Everything's got to be too perfect. They've got to have perfect production design. You can see where the costume designer has just gone off on one and decided to say, oh, yes, well, this symbolizes this and this color symbolizes this. And it's just, you just look at it and go, You've all, you all need to just forget what you're doing. Let someone else tell you how little. It's like everyone's just dialed up their department to 10 or more. And it, yeah. I find it, it's, it's like eating a really rich dessert it's just oh it's just too much <laughs> <laughs> no i totally agree it's, it's, i've always said this that i don't want to see every single spot and pour on no. this face yeah. but me and dave always tell a story dearly the dearly departed network dvd brought the sweeney out on blu-ray and i've had my dvd box set and dave's had his for years so we yeah. rushed out and bought the blu-ray i know what you're gonna say <laughs> That we, we both took it back the following week because it lost all the... Ch- it was so crystal clear. Yeah. It was so kind of vivid. Yeah. It didn't look like a period piece. It looked like Life on Mars. So, it looked like yeah. a brand new TV show that was made last week. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to see the cigarette fog. That's it. I want to see the, the grime. So I kept my DVDs and I felt me blue. Particularly about the two Sweeney films, which had just been cleared up so... It was, you know, deeply saturated colours, and you just go, "That isn't." Oh no, this I prefer it looking a bit rough, and you know, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. that's how I watched it first time round. <laughs> uh, Matthew, Matthew, are are you turning into Garth Marenghi slightly? I Do you am. feel that you are? This is the transformation. It's on this podcast that I become. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, sorry, I was going to say, yeah, it's really the it's the grain that makes it. You can almost smell that shit. Yeah. It's just that yeah. you know yeah. stale fags and stale beer and stale old fags. And it's just it's if going back to the thing about uh, CGI and stuff like that. I can't really watch any CGI films because you get all the action with the actors and then suddenly it's just pixels beating the crap out of yeah. each other. And I don't care about that at all. Yeah. You know, I just I, I like to see even the old stuff that we watch and love. Yeah, okay, the effects might be ropey, but the real somehow yeah. in a way that. CGI yeah. isn't, and I think that's important. It's interesting because it's a general thing as well, because my daughter loves CGI and finds it terrifying, but she doesn't find puppetry or something in a horror film. She just thinks that looks rubbish, and it's, it couldn't get more opposite kind of... But that's she's grown up with that sort of stuff, and for yeah. her, it's a kind of, I suppose, a, she, she believes it, or she can she can... She can believe it. She can suspend her disbelief. But but I think for people like myself who just grew up with, you know, it, it's a different thing. I, it just does. It feels like a computer game. I mean, and I love computer games. Don't get me wrong. I can kind of get into it. But as a film and trying to watch a drama where you're characters with emotions, I can't believe it if, if they're, as you say, fighting some cartoon version of something that we're supposed to perceive as real. It just doesn't work. Uh, well, let's get down to it then, uh, Matthew. Let's talk about the uh, the uh, three things that have scarred you for life. That's the whole point of this podcast. Can we please get your first scar then, please, Matthew? My first scar is, I'm really sorry because I lost this again. I lost it for years. There was a public information film that I remember seeing as a child, and it was a guy who was eating constantly throughout his life. And it showed oh, yeah. different versions of him. You know, he's as a child, and they're saying, "Have one more, oh, okay." And he and oh, have one more of these, Dick. Da, da, da. And every time he just doesn't really want it. They say, "Oh, go on, go on. You got to have another pint." Or you got the last shot is him having had a massive cardiac, lying in the hospital, tearful <laughs> wife saying, "I'm sure you'll come round." Don't listen to him. Give him some more gatto with the brain. <laughs> One way to a man's heart attack is through his stomach. You don't look at all well, Jim. Are you sure they're giving you enough to eat? Eat a little less and look after yourself. And for years I could never find it. I bought all of the public information f- film DVDs that were available from Network and um, and those, those s- sources... But I could never find it. it. was never on there. And then one guy on Twitter, I, I sort of tweeted, Does anyone, is, it, is this my imagination? Did I dream this? Did this thing ever exist? And someone found it and they posted it to me. Um, so, yes, it will be on there. It will be on my Twitter feed somewhere. But, yes, there is a public information film that haunted me so much. And, I, and well, not that I paid any attention to it because I certainly haven't restricted my eating, I guess. <laughs> and I now live in very genuine fear of, of ending up like that. 
Well, it's almost, like, it's almost like a fairy tale thing about eating so much you might explode in a kind of yeah. Augustus Gloop kind of way, isn't it? It's uh, it's a weird thing. So what effect did that have on you? It's weird how frequently these, these public information films re- come up as being things that have scarred people. Why is that, do you think? Well, they were always on. And, and I remember when I sort of spoke about this once before, I think people thought, oh, well, come on, they weren't around when you were a kid. These were before. But no, they were they were repeated constantly throughout the 70s and 80s and into the early 80s. And they would come up in the middle of children's programming. So you'd, you'd be watching, you know, an educational program or a children's program. Then these would come on in between. It was almost like they just fed them in as adverts. Um, and your parents weren't around then. Your parents, you know, were off doing homework, uh, sorry, housework or something like that. So you, you, you just found these things on your own. And I don't, I don't think my mum ever took them in because it wasn't appealing to her. It wasn't kind of, they weren't designed to, to warn her about these sorts of things. Well, certainly the ones that I responded to. So I think yeah. as a child, you're sort of sitting there, you know, with, with your little TV section for the day because you only had a couple of hours where you had TV dedicated to you and these things would come up. So, yeah, it was, I think everyone from that generation who, who watched the same programmes would have have these in their heads. Um, and they were they were really, and they are still really frightening. You know, they're, they're shocked, they're grainy, they're grubby, they're... That they're designed to frighten you. You know, there's a very somber tone to them, and they still have that impact and effect today. Personally, I think they're great. I think they should be doing public information films now. I think there's nothing wrong with warning people when you might get into danger or trouble. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I, I think people these days have got no idea how dangerous a chip pan fire can be yeah. when they've got back from the pub or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, rabies is another thing that is a regular feature on this podcast, and you obviously you did the the snipest right about rabies. It was was that informed from a public service advert fear? Would you say? Yes, definitely. In fact, we I filmed a little public information film at the very start of it, so it starts with a fake public information film about the rabies threat in which I basically went through and tried to emulate all those ones about rabies. I think even some of the shots were deliberately trying to evoke those particular films. And and we were very fortunate to get um, John Hurt to do the voiceover for that public yeah. information film. So yeah, yeah. They, that was almost designed to try and create a drama out of the world of public information films of that time as a kind of alternate history uh, you know of of a and I, I just wanted to do a 70s sci-fi drama that's kind of what i wanted to do i thought well here's a chance you'll never get a chance again just go for it so that's it was very much designed to try and make something that i hoped would sit comfortably in a sort of late 70s original late 70s period of tv programming <laughs> that's the thing the um i wrote the public information film sections in both of our books apart from one yeah which I had to hand over to Dave because I still can't watch a certain rabies piff to this day. Yeah. It gives me a phobic reaction. Yeah. But quite early on, I was kind of, I went from just kind of writing about them to admiring them, to just adoring them as the last great unexplored corner yeah. of British filmmaking because they are beautifully directed. Yeah. They, you've got to convey a message in 30 seconds and they're constructed like a mini movie. With characters yep. and a build-up and a payoff, and just a lot of them will blow most horror film yeah. scenes out of the water. Yeah. So one of our projects, mine and Dave's, sort of mooted books for the future is the history of the British public yeah. information film from kind of the post-war period to 2010. Yeah. Because they, John Krish, there was a director called John Krish who specialised in public information films. Have you ever seen the one? It was a fire warning one it's just a, a camera a steady cam shot around uh, a house with the echoing screams of the family dying oh it's one of the most horrific things i've ever seen in my life the guy was a genius yeah i think that's on one of the bfi releases actually i think it's it's, it's very yeah. short but it is incredible yeah is that yeah searching those recent publication information films that keeps coming up and it's not an official public information film but it's it sort of has that spirit in a way is you know the one for copyright theft that you get on old DVDs that comes up? Filmed very yeah. 90s, I think, or late 90s. That, to me, is like one of the final little public information. Because it's still on there. It's, you still get it coming up. And it, it just has something. There's a, there's, a, there's a tension in it. There's a certain somber tone that, you, that, <laughs> that is that very much like the old ones. And it's very fast-paced. It's very of its period. That's what I also like. It is a very period uh, yeah. film. You know, 
But I always love watching it. I love watching that when that comes up. <laughs> I was going to say, I love the IT crowd's version of that advert. It's, it's, have you seen the, the IT crowd? No. Did they cover? Uh, yeah, they they do. They do. They do a parody of that particular advert. Uh, you wouldn't shoot a policeman. You wouldn't shit in his helmet. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Well, I've noticed that that one is so effective. It still comes up on Twitter memes. Yeah, like twenty years on, because it's stuck in people's heads yeah. so much. You wouldn't something yeah, something something, yeah. and everyone yeah. immediately gets it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, let's get your your second scar then, Matthew, if we can. Okay, my second scar, again, like the first, is this one is lost in time. I can remember watching a children's stop-motion animation film, and this would have been at school. I think they showed it to us at school, and it was rather a creepy fairy tale. I don't really remember. I think it was Russian. It might have been a Russian production. There was a very, very creepy character in it with a very... Out of all the characters, I just remember him. He had a... He had a bald head and a really horrible pale waxen green skin and he was the only character who had that and he was the villain and he would come along and i and i i can remember him being not particularly evil but someone who you had to watch out for that slowly this story would you know he he was becoming a darker character as it went on and there was something about his egg it was quite head it was egg like it was like a rotten egg, and all I could feel watching it was nausea at the, at the smell of putrid <laughs> eggs. And the, so he really freaked me out. I have spent years trying to find it. I've, I thought for many years it might have been the Nutcracker fantasy, which is a great late 70s um, stop-motion film, but it's not that, and I just can't find it. And I don't, I don't have anything else other than this little mental impression in my head of this very creepy, balding guy which is who's got a, a kind of pale green and, and a lot of this went into possum you know the kind of the the, the sweets the color of the sweets that was the color of this guy's head and i think that has haunted me and that a lot of that went into the the visuals for possum definitely <laughs> it sounds like the kind of thing that might have been on picture box yeah because that they, sort of thing. they used to show a lot of russian, ah, stop russian okay. animation there yeah but, maybe it's in one of them but uh, it might well be hopefully one of the Listen yeah, might, I'd, um, love to, I'd love to know what tweet, it was. Tweet the solution. Because I thought, yeah, it, was, I thought it was definitely reason. Russian. I thought it definitely had something. I wondered if it was uh, Peter and the Wolf, a version of that. I don't know, but I've, I kind of found the, what I can, and I just can't find it. But, it, yeah, it was... <laughs> if you if you know uh, this program that Matthew's talking about, do drop us an email contact at scarredforlifebooks.com I mean you know, that one, uh, Matthew, and then the the uh, the previous scar about um, the, the the boy overeating, etc. Would you say you know everyone's got a kind of thing that triggers them with, with horror? Is is that kind of for you? It seems to be kind of taste and uh, almost in a food sense. Some of it. Do you think there's a kind of a, a strand of that in in stuff that freaks you out a little bit? I reckon there must be. I mean, I, I wrote a story a couple of years ago, which is all about birthday cake. And, 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 and that's, you know, that's the creepy thing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah may, maybe that is. I mean, it's probably not worth overanalyzing it. I'll end up, you know, <laughs> thinking I'm deeply disturbed. Um, but, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, what makes you... And this, this is why I think it's important to be able to express, if you, you know, because... There's the conventional things that everyone finds frightening, and those are important. But some of the things, they may they might only make a few particular individuals. But, but it, it's being able to express the weird stuff. It's when horror surprises you, I think, that it becomes very sort of powerful. And, and that half the things that have really, really, truly creeped me out have become because they come out of left field. It's like that, you know, you you don't see it coming. There is some image, mm. there's something, and for some reason it triggers an awful uncanny uneasiness in you and you're not quite sure why. Um, and I think, yeah, I, and the more that I think things become, you know, blanded out for TV and film, you're just going to get, you know, what's I suppose the equivalent of, of, of I don't know, kind of the universal monsters version of Dracula or Frankenstein. You'll just get that very moneyed you know good all round appeals to everyone version of a particular story and yet 
you know, no one's going to know and no one's particularly going to like the really creepy BBC Dracula version, which is actually really quite unpleasant and, and really unnerving in lots of ways. Um, but no one will. Re- but they're two completely different things. You know what I mean? I think yeah. I prefer those things that you don't yeah. quite know why it's creeping you out. But there's an, there's an atmosphere to it that you're going, this isn't right. There's something really off here and I don't know what it is. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's get your, your third and final scar then, please, Matthew. What, what are you going to go for? Ah, I think my third and final one, you're going to have loads of people saying this, but I'd I'd be a fool if I didn't say it. It's got to be threads, I think. Uh, And and that is, I Ah. think there is another TV drama that has ever created such a depressing and frightening vision (laughs) of the end. Um, And I think it's as powerful. I mean, I can't watch it again. I knew it came out on Blu-ray. I was so keen to buy it, but actually I thought, I don't know if I can actually stomach watching this another time. Um, so, yes, I think it is just incredibly powerful, um, a great work of art, um, and m- more frightening than ever now. I think it's it's right up there for all of us. It's um, especially living in those times. That was 1984 and 1983 and 84 were the key years yeah. of the Second Cold War. And people think I'm exaggerating every time we talk about this, but I genuinely, for every single day, it was at the back of yes. my mind that today might be the day when it might yeah. happen. Because it wasn't a question of when it was, uh, if it was when. I wasn't going to live to see 1990. Yeah. I, it was just accepted that I was going to die. My mum used to say, when I would talk to her and say, is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? She'd say, look, don't worry, because if the five minute or three minute warning comes or four minute warning, I don't know. uh, She said, don't worry, I've got enough pills in our family medicine cabinet. I will mix it all up and we'll all go to sleep. No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Bloody hell. It's one way of reassuring your child. <laughs> but I, I still think it's the, the single greatest, single greatest drama I think yeah. this country's ever produced as a one-off yeah. TV drama in every department. And then to find out, me and Dave um, went to visit and interview a guy who was kind of worked on Threads, um, Simon Moorhead, yeah. lovely guy. Yeah, actually also worked on The Bill and was involved with Nosy Bonk, worked on Jigsaw. Oh, wow. So you have those three it's all connected. things on his CV. But yeah. it was such a small budget. Not made by the the drama department wouldn't touch it because they were only interested in BAFTAs yeah. at the time. Yeah. And he didn't see it as a BAFTA winner, so they passed it on to the science department. So everything had to be meticulously researched. Yeah. And he described how one of his jobs was to create vomit and diarrhoea for threads in bell jars. Day one, kind of chunky, day yeah. five, liquid. But it was guerrilla filmmaking <laughs> yeah. from start and to finish. And that's it. And then, so a, a classic example of just when people are left to do it with not much of a budget and they're just being inventive and following their own kind. It, yeah, I think that's, there's a real, I think there's just a lesson there in terms of, of creating stuff for TV is you've got, you know, to it, it, I think you've got to be able to just have a certain amount of freedom to do something interesting. And, and I, you know, that's sad because that doesn't really happen anymore, I don't think. It's always, if it does happen, it's by sheer accident and then everyone prays. <laughs> yeah, I think, as, as Steve said, I think it was massively influential because of the time it was, was shown. I mean, I mean, I tell this story quite a lot of times as well, that I live about five minutes away from a factory that sounded a, an air raid sound at 8.45 every single morning to announce the start of the working day. So I would think, is this the day it's the actual yeah. four-minute warning? Yeah. Is, this, is this it? Am I, is this, you know, and, and I think we all had that nightmare, the, the flash of light and the, you know, the, the yeah. idea that you're going to get consumed all of a sudden in, like, you know, nuclear fire. Absolutely. I, I mean, I remember being on hol- school, a school holiday in York at the time. This was 1986, and this was when Sh- Chernobyl happened. And I remember the, I had a bit of a breakdown because I was so 
I was I was only in York, but my parents were in Kent. But because we were all watching it, you know, on the on the programs and 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 hearing it happen, and I was just and of course they was I remember them saying on the news that they were terrified, they were they were concerned that the the, the radiation was going to come over to to Britain and all of this, and and it's just yeah that that period that time was was very very frightening, very very frightening for you know particularly you know not just for adults but particularly for children because i don't think there were measures put in place as to what they saw on tv you know you did mm. see all that stuff you know you watched the news there was less i think felt like there was less concern for what children were taking in um and and maybe you know we're just products of that time where you, you were exposed to this stuff you know very but I guess it's the same now. To be honest, it's probably probably worse now because of you know so much news is available on so many yeah. you know in such so, in so many different yeah. mediums. That is a risk, I think. But I think you know, there's a lot. Um, you know, I've got like a five, we've got five year old and thirteen year old uh, mm. in terms of school age, and there's a lot of stuff that comes back about t- talking to kids about what's going on in the world because we are in you know treacherous times yet again, unfortunately. But there was definitely none of that when I was a kid about how how you know how do we talk to Andy about what's going on with the Cold War? I, we weren't protected in that way. I think I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, really. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I you know who knows? I I suppose, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of an answer to that. No, no, no. no. So, I mean, you know, we are we are in these weird times at the moment where the threat of nuclear war is kind of looming a little bit with mm. everyone kind of like, you know, it all building up. Do you think Do you think it's going to produce another kind of threads? We've not, no one seems to have gone back to the kind of Armageddon, nuclear Armageddon thing um, recently in, in the world of, of pop culture. What, what, what do you guys think? Well, I suppose it's, I mean, I suppose they have with Oppenheimer, which I haven't seen. But I think, like anything else, I think it will be... Um, it it will it will it will carry a message. It will carry a, a, a an acceptable message for mass consumption. Whereas actually, what you want is something that's going to stir people up and really maybe trigger thoughts in their heads that is not what they're going to automatically think, having seen something that makes them feel safe about it. Um, right. So I don't know. Maybe. Well, apparently, it's um, Gen Z's fear that they're having. Mm. Generation Z is having the same panic attacks yeah. that I had, the same nightmares that we had over climate change. That's their threats. That's yes. their nuclear Armageddon because they're the generation that will have to yeah. confront this head on. Whereas I know it sounds awful and pretty much everyone our age that I talk to were incredibly aware of it. But there isn't a kind of sense of what can we do? Whereas young people, I mean, I work with young people and my kind of part-time job I've got, and they are very concerned about climate change. And I've read articles comparing um, young people's fears mm. of climate change with the Cold War, the panic attacks, the anxiety, the nightmares. So I don't know. I don't know where the climate change version of threads is going to come mm. from, or if it's going to come from anywhere. Because this is the thing: the um, the Cold War seeped into comics, um, nuclear war pop songs, yeah, books, yeah. films, TV. We couldn't avoid it. Whereas I think that's the thing. I think people are, as you said, there's there's so much news now. Yeah. People don't need a TV program or a comic book about climate change. They can just access news all the time yeah. to get those fears, yeah. to get that trauma. I think that's I think that's a, a really really good point. Really good point. Mm. Dave. I think as well nowadays people are in their own little bubbles, their own social media bubbles. They 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 follow who they want, they block who they don't, and so they end up you end up in an echo chamber. So if you want to avoid news, it's quite easy to do that. Yeah, but, you know. So I imagine there's people who are like constantly looking at the news and getting worried, and there's other people who are completely oblivious to everything. Mm. Yeah. Uh, as I've got as I've got older, yeah. I've chosen the oblivious route. Yeah, uh, I just don't watch. The, I don't. I don't watch yeah. the news anymore. I just no, forget it. Best way to be. Best way to be. Well, listen, there we have it, uh, Matthew. Uh, your three scars. Then uh, the overeating public information film uh, with the Augustus Gloop type character having a cardiac arrest later in life. Uh, the second one was the Russian fairy tale with the bald headed creature, which we're hopefully going to find out what that is through our very learned listeners. Contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. and then the peerless threads. You picked that at number three. So thank you so much. Um, you're in incredibly busy man i see you're, you're touring uh, volume two of uh, garth Marenghi's terror tome tell us a little bit about that so it's, it picks up where the first one uh, finishes off it's it's called incarcerate three three stories the continuing uh, trials and tribulations of nick steen best-selling horror writer as he's uh, captured by nultec uh, a 
very shadowy technical research facility with excellent conference parking. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. And there's something about the, the horror short story that almost needs to be told aloud because you're reading from it, aren't you? Yeah. So there's something about that, isn't there, in the way that those, you know, people sit by the fire and tell ghost stories. It's, it needs to be read out loud, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's really good fun to do. Um, and uh, it's very fun to do badly. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, it's been a, a real honour to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Matthew Hornus, thank you for talking to Scarred for Life. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, that is it for another week. A huge thank you again to the brilliant Matthew Holness. Make sure you go and see Incarcerate if you get the chance. It's fantastic. We're going to be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. And you can get in touch at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, Scarred for Life Book on Instagram, or contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. Particularly trying to track down that scary stop-motion animation for Matthew. Uh, You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 